At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, your host. Should children be allowed to transition to the opposite sex that they were born? That was the question in front of the Kentucky legislature last week as state representatives voted on the Do No Harm Act. This bill would have prevented minors from pursuing hormone therapy and gender transition surgery. The bill passed, but not without strong objections from LGBT activists. Joining us to talk further on this topic is Luca Hines, who shared her story in front of the State House Judiciary Committee last Thursday. Luca, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate you joining us, um, especially with all the travel you've done lately and you're a little bit under the weather. So I hope that you can uh, maintain the questions I'm going to throw at you. And and, um, I I think you will. But it's really good to have you with us. So, Luca, I'm going to start out with this. Um, It's a little vignette. After the committee hearing that um, you spoke in uh, the House Judiciary, you had to be taken out a side door because there were so many activists there opposed to um, your testimony and opposed to House Bill 470, the Do No Harm Act passing. And you had a a personal little side story that I'm going to ask you about a little later. But as I was leaving that, I, I went down a side hallway and a representative from the ACLU hollered over to me and said, well, Richard, are you happy with your victories today? And it was in a smarmy tone. She She was being cynical, sarcastic, really. And, you know, I stopped for a moment and I, all I could say was this, that I saw a lot of brokenness in that Judiciary Committee hearing earlier. There was brokenness in the transgender community. And then there was brokenness on the other side, too, those in favor of House Bill 470 passing. And um, part of what I was referring to was, uh, w- was your testimony and your story, which um, I guess we'll start out with this, Luca. Um, what what prompted you to testify um, before that legislative committee about the dangers of gender transition and hormone therapies to minors? Because I, I think it's important that when you have bills like this, you have someone who has been through that process as a minor yeah. and has come out the other end of it harmed. And so I think that is a very important voice to have and to, you know, you can ignore that at your own peril when it comes to these issues. Yeah. Because it really is a matter of, like, with any other issue, if someone comes out of a process, you know, severely harmed, you normally want to hear from that person. And it is very strange for this one, for this issue that you're just, it's almost seen as, like, shocking when that person shows up. Well, it's shocking because there are very few people willing to put themselves out there, even if they've suffered real harm, like you shared. Um, there's just a fear. There's a there's a reluctance to speak out on this issue. And I know that there are a lot of people that have experienced what you've experienced, but you're one of the few that have actually put yourselves out and, and have spoken on this. And by the way, on a personal note, 
I commend you for doing that. I really, I appreciate you sharing your story because it's not easy. But you were, you went into a hostile committee room, and I think we all expected that. But how do you explain that even people who identify as transgender would condemn your story? It, it really is, that really is kind of a difficult question because of the fact that, like, when you really think about it, they should want more detransitioners speaking up to fix that care system. Because, you know, you can't fix something until you know it's broken. But for some reason, that community has taken the stance of, if you talk about this, if you do not toe our line, even as a detransitioner, despite any harm you've suffered, you're, you shouldn't speak. And they, they've made it pretty clear that they would prefer that detransitioners just shut up and go away for the sake of their political movement. The thing that I noticed in that committee hearing was just the level of anger. Not only did they dismiss uh, your testimony, not only were they angry that you shared your story, but it seemed like they were angry at, at everybody. I had a chance to testify earlier that morning about a similar issue, not directly on point, but a similar issue where many in that LGBT activists were in the room. But they were they were angry at legislators. They were angry at groups like ours because we've spoken out against it. And I'm, and again, I'm trying to get my mind around the idea. We have we have this legislative process where you have bills proposed, you have committees that hear the bill, people debate and dialogue, and and yet there was an attempt to just shut it down. And we saw it at the end of that committee hearing where they. One stood up and started yelling shame, shame, shame towards the legislators who voted for it. And there was just a real, a palpable anger. And it appeared that if it was up to them, they would have absolutely shut down any discussion at any point along the way. Absolutely would have. Um, And they, from what I can tell, they are angry at the world because they are not content with themselves down no matter what they've done and you can tell you can tell just by how they act how they talk these aren't people who are actually content with themselves and happier they aren't because people who are like that don't act like that they don't talk like that they don't they aren't mad at every single aspect of the world when it doesn't go their way one of the people who testified against this bill was the leader of the Kentucky Fairness Campaign, and he was essentially yelling at legislators. I was surprised that they allowed him to do that, but he was yelling into the microphone and even threatening, and uh, that's something you don't expect to see uh, see in public. So you're speaking to this issue from um, from your experience and the advice that you were given as a teenager. Tell us about your story. Yeah, so I was a young teenager with multiple mental health issues at the time, you know, a rough home life family had just got like parents just got divorced. Mm. Um, And alongside that, I was also heavily groomed, preyed upon and exploited online to the point of like police involvement in that case. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as a result of that, I really, you know, I kind of, I was going through uncomfortable years of puberty. And of course, with all that going on, I grew up and I was like, I, you know, I don't like these aspects of my body. I don't like the idea of having to grow up into a woman. Um, and I got to the point where I found these, I found these kind of communities online where it was like, oh, if you don't like your chest or you don't like, you know, other aspects of yourself, you don't like the fact that you're starting to grow hips or, you, you know, you want to be strong. You want all, the, all these like very stereotypical things or just, or just twisting of normal teenage insecurities. Um, 
they're like, oh, well, that just means you're a boy born in the wrong body. And of course, you know, I was in a very vulnerable place. And, you know, when someone gives you something like that, that seems like, oh, this is just, this could be the solution to all of my problems. Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's the reason, the reason, you know, I'm depressed or anxious isn't because I, you know, I'm at a new school, my body's changing and my, my family is falling apart. And I'm being preyed upon. It's because I'm just a boy in the wrong body, and you know these things will fix it. Um, and you know, I, I guess inherently, those thoughts are the start of it. But that's not really where everything kind of went off the rails. It went off the rails when I mentioned it to medical providers, mm. and then seemingly they just took it and ran with it because all of a sudden it seemed like instead of dealing with all my comorbidities at the time. It just became, no, if we solve this thing, if we focus on this, this first, I don't know if they assumed everything else would go away or what, but they, they really just focused on that. And that led to, you know, me being, me being taken to a gender therapist who specializes in gender diverse young people, uh, who is, she's an activist. She's married to an activist. She's an activist, you know, so wasn't going to get much help. And then she worked directly with the gender clinic and it, it really in my town and it really ended with um my first medical intervention i ever had was a double mastectomy at 16. Mm. and then a few months after that i was put on hormones and i took testosterone for four years during like crucial development luca what kind of counseling did you have before they did the double mastectomy my counseling was with a gender therapist so someone who specializes in this kind of stuff Except even with her, it wasn't what I could consider real therapy. Because just affirming someone's belief when they come into a room isn't therapy. That isn't working to the bottom of the issue. That isn't helping them solve any problems. Just going, yes, you're valid. Yes, this identity and this issue you are having is valid. And not working through it didn't help me get to the bottom of why this was happening. It didn't. Instead, it just, if anything, pushed me further down this path. Whereas if someone would have been like, okay, you're clearly having issues, you may be having issues with this, but you also have several other things going on that need to be taken care of first, and then we'll see how you feel about that. That might have been enough to, at the time, you know, put me on a different path completely, and I wouldn't be here today. You had mentioned that you were struggling with mental health issues, that your um, family was breaking up, your parents were going through divorce, sounded like you were going to a new school. When, when did that happen? When did you start experiencing those mental health issues and then gender dysphoria? This was all around, like, from ages 13 to 14 when everything started. So, you know, freshman year of high school, I'm at a new school, and I got all the other mess going on as well. So in, what I'm trying to get to is then you found these online communities that were supportive. You eventually went to a, um, a, a counselor who was affirming you, and then eventually you ended up with medical professionals that did a double mastectomy. At any point between the ages of 13 and 14 and 16 when you had a double mastectomy, were you getting any other advice? Was anybody providing a different perspective? counsel that might have helped you to look at the bigger picture or might have tried to explain why you were feeling the way you were feeling? Honestly, not really. It, it really was like, okay, you know, we could figure out, it, there was no real getting to the root of it, of why all of a sudden this issue popped up. It was just like, yes, it was immediately, yes, you are having this issue and here's how you're going to deal with it. You know, it was 
really a whole lot of working through anything looking back. One reason why that's a really important question is, as we started out talking about on the program, is the other side is trying to completely shut down those that have a different view on gender identity and on this issue of whether minors should be allowed to transition through hormone therapy or surgical intervention. There's really a... uh, an attempt to shut down conversation, to cancel even other people who are speaking on on this, those that have a different view. My experience is that there's a lot of fear. I get it. People are afraid to be canceled. They're afraid to be singled out and told that they're transphobic or whatever, uh, whatever every, any other name they're called. What would you say to those people who are afraid to speak out? If they see something that's wrong, let's say they see a, a child, a minor who is experiencing gender dysphoria, let's say there's a parent or a high school guidance counselor or somebody that sees that something wrong is going on, that a child is being pushed in the wrong direction. I would say, you know, specifically if it's a child, as a responsible adult, it is your duty to, you know, show that there is maybe another path, whether that be talking to the parent or, you know, even just gently talking to the child and being like, Hey, you're going to want to like you, you're going to want to wait. Um, and it, I feel like the activists on the other side really like to point it out as, Oh, anytime you have this conversation, you're being violent, but no, there are very, you know, like gentle and compassionate conversations that can be had here that would be beneficial for everyone involved yeah. that need to happen, especially with the, how many young people are being pushed towards the gender care industry these days, those conversations absolutely need to be happening. And I understand that there is an aspect of fear, but I think what people also need to understand is that these activists are a very small portion who just happen to scream very, very loud. Yeah. And that most like average people, they support you. They don't think teenagers should be doing this. They don't think teenagers can make all these decisions. They don't. And I know I know it because anytime I've, I've kind of talked about my story in real life, I've had people like, you know, I've, I've told them that what I regret and they come up to me and it, almost in a whisper, like they are, we're the only people in the room, but they're still scared. Someone might hear and they go, like, yeah, no, I agree. I don't know why we're letting teenagers make these decisions. Most people agree. And the more people that stand up and really want to protect children in this way, the louder that voice will get. And you realize that it's it's not only a few people that believe these things. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with Luca Hine. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at CPC for Kentucky. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, here with Luca Hine, who recently testified before the State House Judiciary Committee on the Do No Harm Act, House Bill 470. Luca, just before the break, we were talking about Um, a general fear that people had of speaking out on behalf of minors who are suffering from gender dysphoria and confused. And uh, there really is a lot of fear of being canceled, of being labeled, 
um, what, what have you, but you explained that parents have a duty to speak out on behalf of minors, to be their advocate. And that's simply what House Bill 470 attempts to do. It's putting into place a law that says that minors cannot transition to the opposite biological sex. Through hormone therapy or surgical procedures, they uh, they cannot. It's against the law in Kentucky. There are a few other states that have done this. Uh, Utah is one. I believe South Dakota. Tennessee most recently passed a law. Uh, it's waiting Governor Bill Lee's signature. And I think there's a movement um, in other legislatures as well. Actually, several other state legislatures are addressing this issue. I want to go to uh, go back to your story. You were uh, you were told that essentially that it's okay that you were just simply a, a a girl, a female trapped in the wrong body. So you had these radical procedures done on you, um, uh, and this was done by the medical um, medical professionals. These are people that we trust. These are people that we think have the best interest. Uh, of everybody in their in their in mind. Um, so, what do you say? Uh, and I'm not sure if you're prepared to answer this. So, if you don't have an answer, but I'm curious, what about medical organizations like the um, American Association of Pediatrics that have affirmed what they call gender affirming care? And if you could see me, I'm doing the air quotes because I do not like that term, gender affirming care. But they've endorsed it. The AAP has, the American Medical Association has endorsed it. How do you speak against these large, professional medical organizations that are affirming um, and, and supporting and saying it's okay to do gender-affirming care? I think it is you know, disingenuous to assume that large medical organizations cannot be captured by bad ideas. Mm. You know, like lobotomies used to be common practice for medicine and were hailed as a great treatment. And we now look back at that with horror. We look back at horror with a lot of things medical organizations and medicine in general have done. And so just for some reason to think that this practice is excused from that, just because we're in the modern day, I feel like is very, you know, not learning from our history. No, that's a really good point. And I just, I, I use one example in a column that I wrote about uh, eugenics. It's a debunked science. Uh, Many doctors and professional medical organizations in the first half of the 20th century uh, embraced this idea of perfecting the human race. And it led to state laws and state policies that resulted in the sterilizations of 60,000 people across the country from 1900 till the mid-1960s. And that is a totally debunked science. We've rejected it. Uh, And that science, by the way, was based on racist policies that the Caucasians were a superior class and that um, blacks and other races were inferior. Um, So we've rejected that. And that's a a very good point that you bring up, that just because it's the uh, medical community doesn't mean that they could have been misled by bad ideology and bad, uh, bad ideas. Especially when you look at the medical organizations that were the leaders that kind of pioneered this care. Over in Europe, you know, you got, you got Finland, Sweden, Denmark, France, England. They've all pulled back and called this a medical mistake. Yeah. And the people who wrote the Dutch protocol, which is what is used to kind of justify putting kids on puberty blockers, they've said it was never meant to be interpreted this way. You know, it was never meant to be extrapolated to a whole care system. They knew it was very experimental, and they handpicked 
kids with no comorbidities that they thought would benefit from this treatment, knowing it was experimental. And somehow over, you know, in the States and I suppose Canada as well, we've like twisted it to now it is for some reason almost codified into these medical organizations. And, you know, you also have almost activist organizations like WPATH who write the so-called guidelines for these things who have great influence over these medical organizations when they themselves really shouldn't be taken that seriously. I think we're seeing the politicization of medicine and of research. They like to point to certain research, but it's been debunked. I'm thinking of the, the one research paper that the AAP refers to. It was done in 2020, and it purports to show the benefits of hormone therapy for minors that want to transition to the opposite-born biological sex. Yet the study was flawed, according to a Canadian clinical psychologist and a scientist with the Canada Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He found that the study was filled with misrepresentations, and it ignored the clinical and professional consensus that the best approach to care for minors struggling with gender dysphoria is the watchful waiting approach. And that's where you wait to see if the symptoms persist into adulthood before any attempts are made to transition them. I believe that is also directly in the DSM-5, and it talks about how many, just how many of these kids, if you just wait, will grow out of these feelings. Because I believe Representative Decker even brought that up and directly quoted the DSM-5 on that. Yeah, and of course, you're referring to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatrist Association, and that's like the Bible of mental health guidance and procedures. And uh, the DSM-5 has this watchful waiting approach towards minors. The number, by the way, 85% of minors suffering from gender dysphoria will eventually embrace their own biological sex as they grow into adulthood. At some time during their 20s, uh, 85% of kids struggling from gender dysphoria will embrace their biological sex. by sex, it also differs from like around 85% to girls to even up to like in the high 90s for boys dealing with gender dysphoria. And then you realize the best cure for gender dysphoria is going through puberty. Mm. So we would advocate to stop that. This doesn't seem right. We've got just a few minutes, Luca. Um, I want to go back to what one of the state representatives on that House Judiciary Committee said. Her name is Pam Stevenson. She's from Louisville, and she argued that gender transition and hormone therapy for minors should be left to parents and children. She suggested that the state is inserting itself between the parent and child relationship. How do you respond to that? I would respond, it is never a parent's right to mutilate your child. You know, across the globe, female genital mutilation is condemned, and that could arguably be, but it is the right of the parent to make that decision for their children. And we all condemn that still. People go to jail for that still. Um, But it really isn't, because by protecting that child and letting them grow up whole, you are protecting their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that they would not have had if they get mutilated as a teenager. The, The state protects children from a lot of things. You know, I, I, you can't get a tattoo, you can't drink, you often can't get certain kinds of piercings, you can't drive, you can't vote. There's a lot of things that the state arguably inserts itself into that dynamic to make sure 
that regardless of how the parent feels, the kid isn't doing this to make them safe. And it is arguably one of the only jobs that I feel like most people can agree the government has. And so that is a very disingenuous argument to go, oh, well, you are interfering with these, with these parents' rights or this doctor's right, because it is never a parent or doctor's right to mutilate a child in this way. Now, that's a very, very good point. And I'm thinking of other examples of where the state inserts itself into the parent-child relationship. I'm thinking at a very young age, state law requires that infants be put in a, in a car seat. Um, toddlers need to have booster seats. And if parents don't do that, they're going to be in trouble because the state has an interest in protecting those children. And I would say the same as with, uh, when, when we're talking about gender transition surgeries. I want to go back to one other thing that's really, really important, and it's the first time I heard this. I'll try to explain it really quickly, but you had mentioned preserving life, liberty, opportunity. Well, when a child, a minor, has a transition surgery where there's mastectomies, that automatically um, precludes um, breastfeeding if you ever wanted to become a mother someday. Or if a a young boy wanted to um, have a vaginoplasty, I think that's what it is called for males, um, but they w- they would be rendered infertile. So the opportunity to be a mother or a father or to nurse a child, those are precluded, are they not? And it doesn't even need to get to surgery for that to be the case. You know, puberty blockers and hormones themselves are just not, if not more. I've explained as, you know, surgery damaged one part of me. Hormones did the everything else. You know, I can't do certain things because my joint hurt and my joints hurt so bad. You know, I have heart damage, rib and spine damage, all these things from so-called life-saving care that will limit me for potentially the rest of my life. I never know if I'll be able to have a child, and I know I certainly won't be able to breastfeed them. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important point. And, and I'm sorry for all that you have suffered through and that you did not have advocates um, who sought to protect you and your future. Um, but that is something that people need to hear about, that these hormone therapies given to minors uh, are not safe, are they? And you, you'd shared some real, I think you shared a story about you wanting to join a hiking club with some of your friends, but you can't even do something as simple as that, can you? I can't because it, it wouldn't be fair to the rest of them if we go on a trip and I'm, I can't do it, you know, because I, I couldn't get up this fall. I couldn't get up to walk to class some days because everything hurts so bad, let alone do something like that. Luca, what would you say? We've got just a 30 seconds here. What would you say to parents who have a child suffering from gender dysphoria? Be kind to them, be compassionate with them, but let them grow up because they're going to do a lot of growing and a lot of finding out who they are. And you shouldn't cement that into being at such a young age when they're barely even, they barely even experience the world. That's a good last word. Luca, on a personal level, Thank you for joining us on the Commonwealth Matters, and thank you for sharing a very personal and painful story. And hopefully, others will uh, will learn from this and uh, heed some of your uh, wisdom and words of counsel. God bless you, and um, stay strong. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So, if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at commonwealthpolicycenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. 